Of the many crises of capitalism, one has become particularly pronounced over the past half century. As the gap between rich and poor widens, factory workers can no longer afford to buy the products of the factories they work in. Salespeople can't afford the products of the shops they staff, and riders can't afford the food they deliver. This is what's called over-accumulation, a glut of stuff and not enough people to buy it. What then happens is that this surplus wealth is consumed mostly by the super-rich. In the US in 2012, for example, the top 5% of households did 38% of spending. You know how the Financial Times has a magazine that until recently was called How to Spend It? That's because capitalists genuinely have more money than they know what to do with. In 2017, the largest US-based companies had over $1 trillion in uninvested cash, while worldwide, reserves were over $12 trillion. Meanwhile, as capitalists exhaust the traditional means of profit generation, making stuff mostly, they turn to more and more creative methods of making money, mostly in the financial markets. This overaccumulation creates a surplus not only of capital, but of labour. Who needs people to make widgets when your money can make you money all by itself? This creates a further problem. What do you do with all the people you no longer need in the economy? They certainly can't be left to plot a revolution. Unable to exploit this mass of surplus humanity, the only option of the transnational capitalist class is to control it. This is William I. Robinson's starting point in The Global Police State. Published in 2020, his book examines how the transnational capitalist class, by which he means governments working in tandem with and often at the behest of corporations, has sought to use all of the methods at its disposal to suppress an increasingly inevitable rebellion. His analysis has aged depressingly well. For Navarra FM, I'm joined by Robinson, a professor of sociology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, to talk about how state and non-state actors conspire in mass social control, how resistance to policing too often relies on purely moral arguments, and how a materialist analysis might better inform the call for abolition. William I. Robinson, welcome to Navarra FM. Thank you so much for having me on. So the book's title is a bit misleading because uh, it's not actually very much about the institution of the police at all, although obviously the police state has its own genealogy. Um, but it's also misleading in that it's actually more about, or at least as much about, the police non-state as the police state. Can you tell us what you mean by the global police state? The term police state has been around for a long time, and what we generally understand with that is is not necessarily the police as an institution, but a authoritarian, even dictatorial 
um, a, a government um, which is ruling by repression, by coercive mechanisms of social control. And so in that sense, I'm evoking that, you know, that well well used phrase of police state but i'm trying to convey that this is global it's not just global in that you know most countries in the world at this point are moving towards what we historically called a police state but also because the global system as a whole global capitalism as a whole is moving into this stage in which the ruling groups are increasingly turning towards coercive systems of transnational social control and, and repression. And that's part of what I mean by global police state. In fact, I lay out in the book that I mean three things by global police state. And the first is that we are, I've just said, you know, we're seeing worldwide this shift towards uh, towards dictatorships, towards authoritarian regimes, even towards fascist projects. And even when we don't see these authoritarian states, we're seeing widespread at the level of civil society uh, throughout societies. We're seeing these mechanisms of, of, of severe repression and social control. And we'll get later into the interview, but there's a reason for that. It's because of extreme inequality and because there's a global revolt underway and the ruling groups need to suppress that revolt. But I actually mean three things by global police state. That's only the first. Secondly, I'm referring to the fact that global capitalism is in deep crisis, a deep structural crisis. And of course, the book came out in 2020, but right now these banks are collapsing. We're on the verge of another global uh, recession. There's a global inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But this structural crisis at, at the deepest level means that the ruling groups and the transnational corporations, especially what I call the, the transnational capitalist class, has accumulated enormous amounts of wealth, and it, can, it doesn't know where to profitably keep on reinvesting this wealth. Um, the rate of profit in, in the productive sector is, is, is way down. Um, and so increasingly spending on warfare, on militarization, on systems of transnational con social control, on the construction of border walls, on beefing up um, uh, police systems, on wars against so-called so-called wars against terrorism, so-called wars against drugs, against immigrants, you know, all, um, all you know, um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, what do you call it? gated, gated, um, Gated communities, all of this, right? Militarizing and, and, and all of global society is a tremendous outlet for overaccumulated capital. And it's wildly profitable. So just look for a moment. Russia invades Ukraine. Of course, many of us, I absolutely condemn that invasion, but that was wonderful news for major sectors of the transnational capitalist class because it means endless military spending and, and um, ancillary spending around the military spending. The U.S. government has already sent a, a, a approaching $120 billion in weapons to um uh, to to uh, to Ukraine later on. I know we'll get into some data, shocking data in the interview. How the military-industrial complex, but it's fused with the tech industry. It's fused with the big global banks, with Wall Street and so forth. How they are, have record profits, and every time this conflict, every time this new escalation of repression, uh, such as you know, at border immigrants coming into borders, this booming profit making at a time of stagnation in the productive economy worldwide. That's secondly what I mean by global police state, that all of the whole global economy is now militarized. Um, and that's profit making. The third thing I finally mean, and I've, I've spoken about this already, but we want to see the three of these connected, is that we're seeing this spread of far-right authoritarian, really neo-fascist projects um, all around the world. Um, so we have to see how these three elements are intertwined in new ways that single this new and extremely dangerous phase in global capitalism with this uh, in, in, in global society, global capitalism, with the severe crisis as the backdrop to this global police state.
So you have this idea, which I think helps us get to the heart of some of uh, the book's kind of main arguments, which is this idea of surplus humanity, um, which on the face of it seems like it could be like a cipher for the working class, but actually is, is quite a different concept. Can you tell us a bit about what surplus humanity is um, and how you understand their role in the particular crisis of capitalism that we're currently facing? Global inequalities have never been more acute since we've had uh, since we've kept data for the last two hundred years. We've never seen such unbelievable inequalities. And many of the listeners and viewers, you know, the podcast will know that in two thousand twenty-three, one percent of humanity controls now fifty-four percent of the world's wealth, and twenty percent of humanity that sector of humanity that can actually survive in global capitalism controls 95% of the world's wealth. So think about that. 80% of humanity has just 5% of the world's um, wealth. So what we see with that 80%, but also with a significant portion of the 20%, the global working class is divided into two groups. One group are those that actually have jobs, that they can get income, but they work as precarious, increasingly precariatization, flexibilization, informalization, casualization of work. So people are underemployed um, or employed in, in precarious circumstances that it doesn't allow for survival. That's one group of the global working class integrated into the global economy. The other big group, which I'm calling surplus humanity, is that sector of the global working class, which is pushed out of the global economy because there's no need for them. The, the transnational capitalist class, the global economy, has, cannot absorb them or does not need to absorb them. And that raises the problem of how do you control and contain, contain the actual rebellion which is underway plus the potential rebellion of surplus humanity. Right. Now, listen to this data. It's absolutely shocking. The International Labor Organization already 20 years ago reported that one third of, the, of, 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 of humanity is unemployed, structurally marginalized, locked out. Then in subsequent reports, all of this is from the International Labor Organization, Subsequent reports, it, it, it said that 2 billion people on the planet work in the informal sector. Informal, like you sell things in the street or you to just figure out, you know, scratch out a living uh, without any formal employment. It then it reported that 1.3 billion workers who are not in the informal sector have precarious work relations. So that's 3.3 billion people, right, facing this uncertain survival. This unprecedented inequality and this unprecedented expansion of surplus humanity um, means that the ruling groups can only hold on to power through extreme violence, extreme repression, extreme militarization. And so that's, again, why we're moving into this uh, global police state. It's, it's ironic here that the transnational capitalist class, and again, what I mean by that is that um, there are local capitalists in every country you know, regional capitalists in different regions, but at the commanding heights of the whole global economy, the global ruling class is really this transnational capitalist class that no longer recognizes borders or even identifies with individual nation states. And this transnational capitalist class has a profit-making problem. And let me go, go a little bit into this. And it is that um, if 80% of humanity cannot consume, cannot consume then the transnational capitalist class cannot make profit because the global economy is so unbelievably productive. It can churn out enormous amounts of goods and services, but it doesn't make a profit until those goods and services are actually unloaded into the global market. So you have a situation where the global product, you know, economy is expanding, but the global market cannot absorb that expansion. And so there's a crisis of profit making. And so that's linked to the issue of surplus humanity that cannot consume or precarious workers whose actual real wages are going 
coming down. And as we speak, they continue to go down. And so that, again, is also why global police state, independent of its repressive dimensions, is a way for unloading all of that excess accumulated profit and continuing to make profit in the, in the, in the face of this stagnation, or more technically what we call in political economy, a crisis of overaccumulation. Great. That is a hugely helpful summary of your ideas around the kind of consolidation of the transnational capitalist class and the production of this kind of uh, unuseful or useless surplus humanity uh, versus the kind of useful, um, though still obviously very marginalised working class. Um, I think there's something interesting, uh, though, about this idea of the consolidation or a risk, perhaps, inherent in the real fact of the consolidation of power into the hands of a small number of individuals. I mean, you you do a huge amount of setting out in your book um, exactly who owns what and sort of peeling back the layers of uh, corporations to reveal. I think you say it's like 17 international, multinational corporations, something like that, 17 or 18, controlling, you know, large swathes of the global economy. Economy. Um, and obviously this is this is factually true. Um, but I think there's a potential danger here in that when setting out the very real ever like you know um provable consolidation of power in the hands of a small number of people um that you can end up sounding remarkably similar to conspiracy theorists, for example, um, who you know peddle ideas of George Soros namely controlling large parts of the global economy. And I'm wondering how, as leftists, we launch these kind of materialist, um, you know, critiques of of global capital um, without, you know, risking co-optation by or hijacking of our arguments by conspiracy theorists, effectively, and how, how to kind of effectively uh, launch arguments that, that kind of set out what is really happening, um, whilst also not not allowing people to interpret those arguments as, well, if you just blow up the offices of uh, the World Economic Forum, then all of these problems will be solved. You know, how do you be, how 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 does one be um, extremely specific in one's arguments whilst also not suggesting that these actors, whether that's Davos, whether that's the Group of 30, whether that's uh, BlackRock, whoever, are somehow uh, responsible for... Uh, capitalism, you know, so, so somehow solely responsible for capitalism. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's a perfectly um, legitimate and important question, but we want to remember another of, a number of things here. Capitalism is an objective system. I mean, it's not, it's not, we don't have global capitalism because the, the because these 17 global conglomerates have said we want capitalism, right? Capitalism is objectively has its own dynamic, its own processes. And we've analyzed this for, for, well, for 150 years now that, by the natural development of capitalism, there is a process of the centralization and the concentration of capital on a global scale. Now, in just one moment, I'll comment on how historically that centralization has been at least put on hold or reversed a little bit by when states intervene in the, in the capitalist economy. I'll get right back to that. But I want to say that it doesn't matter that we speak of George Soros or Jeff Bezos. It's irrelevant to people. They're personifications of, a, of global capitalism, of capital. And they are simply those that are the faces that we see uh, involved in these objective historical processes of capital. And capital is a system that absolutely has to extract 
value from labor and accumulate capital, accumulate uh, profits. So we can replace any of those individuals or other individuals. That's not important. And in fact, in, in my book, I've mentioned two or three people only in certain contexts. Um, and we can come back to that. For instance, what um, what um, Elon Musk said when he supported an, you know this, this coup d'etat in, in Bolivia to get it to lithium. We can come back to that. So that's the first thing. This is this centralization and, and, and concentration of capital on a global scale ha, has been going on for a very long time, and it's qualitatively intensified through globalization, and I'll mention that in just a minute. The second thing we want to remember is that we can go to the other extreme. You know, we can say we don't want to talk about conspiracy, so we won't talk about any individuals or any subjects who are the actual agents of, of capitalist globalization, but, but the other that's the other extreme that we don't want to go to. The fact is that there is a transnational capitalist class, and there's been many studies. I mean, my study on the global police state is building on 13 other books that I previously published, and then I'm involved in academic and political circles where we others have been researching this now for, for 25 to close to 30 years that we're talking about TCC, transnational capitalist class. And, and we have um, identified that, in addition to the objective dimension here, there is a transnational capitalist class which is conscious of itself as a class, conscious of its interests, and pursuing its interests. And they do meet in political forums around the world, and they do meet in planning bodies around the world. They meet at the IMF. The IMF brings together these technocrats that design structural adjustment programs, and, and the, they meet at the World Bank. Their annual meetings are held, and they, who goes there to those annual meetings are the top-level representatives of the global corporate elite together with the technocrats that run these institutions. You mentioned the World Economic Forum. It's not conspiratorial to point out, and I just wrote an article on the World Economic Forum in, in, in February, and I want to comment on it because there's some interesting things going on there this year distinct to earlier years. But the World Economic Forum, we know, brings together these, the, the, the um, CEOs of the 3,000 or 4,000 leading global corporations. And it brings together heads of states, it brings together the technocrats to run the IMF and the World Bank and the WTO, etc. And they do discuss the, the problems each year. They discuss the what needs to be done to push forward global capitalism. What are the problems? How are they going to rule that year? So it's not conspiratorial to point out that there are both objective historical processes and there are real-life subjects, collective subjects, collective agents. And that's, that's actually solid social scientific uh, 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 analysis. But I want to mention one other thing. The data that you mentioned is actually two other things. It, uh, I didn't come up with this data. I'm quoting my colleague who also is researching the transnational capitalist class. There are 17 global financial conglomerates that do control $42 trillion in wealth, which is more than half of the entire global economy. That is an objective fact. It's not a conspiracy theory. That's actual raw data, right, on the global on the global economy. But here's the thing, that these are global financial conglomerates, and we have to understand how the global economy is now structured, and these financial conglomerates are the very core. But there are investors from all over the world, other corporations that, that are tied up with these global financial conglomerates. There's investor groups from all over the world. I mean, so you're not talking just about the 17 conglomerates, but they're, they're, organ, they're, they're at the core of a much, much larger system of global um, capitalism. And then you have local capitalists all over the, all over the world that have no other choice but to integrate into the, in a subordinate way into these globalized circuits. I don't want to make the answer too academic, but I, I, I just want to point out, though, that we do see at the summits of power there are small groups of people, and that they incorporate into the structures that they, you know, that they are ultimately commanding um, a great many people. To kind of bring it back to the idea of the police state, you know, 
you talk about these leaders meeting in forums. We, we know, you know, we talk a lot about on Navarra about how the right has class solidarity and, you know, those impact that the powerful have an enormous amount of class solidarity that the left could learn from. Um, but in those forums where that solidarity is manifested um, and, and where they talk about, for example, how they will rule, um, how does uh, policing factor into that? And, and, and that might be, as you say, and as you said in your response to the first question, uh, not just, as we know it, uniformed police officers, but also non-uniformed police officers. There's an amazing section in your book where you talk about how there are more in the UK, you quote um, a colleague of yours saying that there are more uh, security guards, private security guards in the UK than there are members of the British Army. And in South Africa, um, you know, private security outnumber uniformed police five to one, uh, which is just an insane stat. And so, you know, how... How does policing play a part in the um, in the kind of um, the rule of the transnational capitalist class? Because for most of us would understand their control um, as happening primarily economically. They rule by paying us very little money so that we don't have enough to to kind of um, live on, and certainly not enough leisure time to try out any other, um, you know, a rebellion or a revolution. Um, but yeah, how does policing per se factor into that, that control and why does it need to? And maybe also, sorry, as in a kind of additional question, how does that um, policing differ from the kinds of policing that we might have seen in, in the 20th century? century? You know, um, you quote Gramsci, that, that most famous quote talking about how the modern crisis is related to the crisis of authority. You know, that, that lack, loss of authority and the need to control as opposed to um, rule by consensus um, is, is a long-standing problem. How, how is that problem different now? Sorry, those are two questions in one. Uh, or multiple questions in one. So um, this is fantastic. It allows me to go into some of the actual shock, shocking data here and analyze that data uh, for your listeners and, and, and your your um, viewers. And But so let me launch into this and let me say that, again, the problem is that the, t the, the title of the book is Global Police State. But that doesn't mean that policing is all I'm talking about here. I'm talking about something much, much, much more expansive. But we need some 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 easy phrase to try and capture what I'm talking about, and that's where I you know coined the notion of global police state. But remember, I'm referring to global police state as a convergence of global capitalism's political need for social control and its economic need to perpetuate profit making and capital accumulation in the face of chronic stagnation. Let's look at this. What's happened over the last twenty years, and we can see how it's different in the 20th century as well. September 11 of 2001, the attacks in New York and in, and in Washington, um, they opened up this a much more sweeping militarization of the entire global economy and society. They pushed us into a permanent war economy. Uh, and that war economy is at the center of the larger global economy. And it brings in all of, it brings in so much more than the idea of just policing. In fact, policing is secondary. When you see in the United States, people in blue uniforms driving in their, in their, you know, their patrol cars, that's totally secondary to the larger story here. So the global police state is immensely profitable. The Pentagon budget increased, or, you know, these are data from the book, between 1998 and 2011, it increased by 98%. It nearly doubled the Pentagon budget. Worldwide, between 2006 and 2015, uh, state military spending increased by over 
50%. It now is somewhere in the area of $2.5 trillion. But that doesn't include all this other state spending. It doesn't include state spending for, like in the United States, homeland security, for border security, for constructions of prisons, for so much more. So I calculated in the book that some 5 to 6% of the entire global economy is dedicated just to this, what I call militarized accumulation, right? And accumulation by repression. And accumulation by repression. But I mean, surely you could say that it's even more than that, because the way that you talk in the book, as you say, very expansively about what constitutes the global police state, you might include housing and planning and, you know, all sorts of kind of, you know, green zoning, as you as you sort of describe, global green zoning um, in in those forms of kind of repression and um, not militarization per se, but certainly kind of spatial apartheid and, and, and forms of repression that aren't even just kind of, we wouldn't even associate with policing, really. Well, exactly. That's my point that, the t again, that term policing is, is, gonna, is, is misleading. Well, let, let me elaborate on this um, uh, a little bit. And, this, and so, but let me also point out that one of the things going on here is that capitalism by its very nature has to expand outward constantly. It has to discover new outlets for investment, new ways to make profit. It ha happens to open up new areas where nature can be appropriated, where, where, where minerals underground can be discovered and exploited, et cetera, et cetera. And so you need, so we've, we've seen this radical, and it's over, taking place as we speak right now, a new out radical expansion of capital, capital worldwide, a, a, an offensive of the transnational capitalist class to open up new spaces for accumulation. And that requires global police states. You have to repress local communities. You have to dispossess. And when you dispossess, you have to repress the resistance to that dispossession. Then you open up new mining operations or new oil wells, and then you have to defend them. So there's much, much more going on here. The linkage between political, economic, and military and repress they're all linked together. Um, you were mentioning a gray zoning, but then there's other things going on. There's you mentioned the green zoning. Let me explain where that term comes from. When the U.S. and by the way, we're in the, the today. I think is the 20th anniversary of the invasion, beginning of the invasion and occupation of Iraq by the United States. A crime, you know, the biggest crime in the you know in recent memory. Uh, and so what the U.S. military did, they went into Baghdad and they set up this impenetrable barrier in the very core of Baghdad and inside was the U.S. military and political um, colonial, you know, occupation forces and the new Iraqi elite that had been brought to power and cultivated by that invasion. So you had this green zone. That's where the privileged groups were, and they were protected, and they could have all the shopping centers and their, their, their internet and their cinemas and and their business offices, and outside, of course, waged this horrible war in which there was nothing mayhem, death, and destruction, right? And so what we see worldwide, when 1% of humanity controls 54% of the wealth, and they live in exclusive enclaves, but then the 20% of humanity, through gentrification in new city centers that have become, you know, these comfortable, you know, these, these comfortable enclaves where the rest of the population is outside. So you have green zoning and gray zoning all over the world in which the, the, that 20% is locked into, you know, protected, and they're protected by a global police state. And you asked earlier, I didn't get a chance to answer what's different in the 21st century, among many other things, is digitalization. The new digital technologies here are extremely important. We're talking about, of course, AI and machine learning, big data, the Internet of Things, automation and robotics, nano and biotechnology, 3D printing, so forth and so on. But what we've seen is the new digital technologies allow for this 
global police state to take place. This book set up the whole framework for the notion of global police state militarized accumulation, but I published a second one after it titled Global Civil War, which looked more at the rebellion from below. And there I went into a lot of detail on these, this digital technology. And you know, I quoted one um, a, a general <clears throat> that had actually led, McPherson, I think his name, don't quote me exactly, I think McPherson was his name, but he, he was the key general in, in Iraq. And he said that this was the first time where we could have a full digital war, right, against the Iraqi people. Sure, there were 500,000 U.S. troops on the ground. And he said, going forward now, and especially with COVID, we now have these digital technologies which can make allow us to wage this new digital uh, warfare. But that digital that, that that digital revolution also allows to other you know to other forms of social control, not just warfare. It allows for facial recognition. It allows for for um, virtual fences. I mean, I can go on endlessly. Let me just conclude with uh, one other thing here because I want to go back. The global police state is not just the military spending. Okay, it's also uh, corporations that hire mercenary armies and private security guards. You mentioned some of the data in order to protect their installations uh, around the world. I mean, we can go, you know, on and on. But global police state, just literally police are maybe two or three percent of what I mean by global police state. There's a boom in prison construction around the world. There's 200 private prisons. But one of my graduate students just finished, you know, defending his dissertation, and he goes into a prison boom of mega prisons all over the world. The newest mega prison is in El Salvador with a capacity for 60,000 people, but also in Thailand. Thailand's opening up a mega prison for 40,000 people. So all of this is part of global police state. When you have 80% of humanity locked out, when you have this massive crisis, you have to massively now lock up people. And that's booming profit. It's profitable to create these prisons and it's also global police state. So, you know, the story goes on and on and on. Yeah, no, it really does. And I think the locking out is obviously a, a metaphor, but it's also literal in that you're saying that there are many people who are 60,000 people in El Salvador who, who will now be locked out of society, but also the locking out happens through uh, digitalization, through kind of, uh, you know, in more in more kind of immaterial ways as well, mm-hmm. um, or, or less kind of literal ways, let's say. Um, I, I want to return to this idea of digitalization and the kind of fourth industrial revolution technologies which you cite in the book um, and how that makes policing much more easy and resistance to it much more difficult so i'm going to give an example you know in 1980 in 1980 in fact um in bristol uh riots erupted um after the police raided uh, the black and white cafe which was very popular with black bristolians this triggered a bunch of riots, um, including in Brixton, um, that then precipitated lots of kind of, well, quote unquote, police reform. Um, we can debate the the pros and cons of, of that. But what we have now, this very visible kind of policing and resistance to it has been replaced in the fourth industrial revolution with very invisible forms of policing. So for example, you're a Deliveroo rider um, or an Amazon factory worker and you package things too slowly. You might be sanctioned, um, you know, via email or if you're a Deliveroo rider via the app and face consequences which are entirely privatized and invisible. Um, And I'm wondering whether, you know, this is what you're talking about when you say in the book, that there has been a quote-unquote disaggregation of the working class that accompanies a quote-unquote aggregation of capital. Um, You know, whether this kind of is this 
aggregation of capital is accompanied by a fragmentation of workers and the policing of workers that makes resistance to it very difficult to enact. Because how do you on a one on one basis, you know, how do you even know that this policing is happening to people? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question and framed it in that way, because exactly the bigger story of the global police state is not the actual military conflicts, which themselves have been revolutionized by the digital technologies, right? Um, the bigger story is how the entire global working class, again, divided into those that are the working class because they have nothing to sell with their labor, uh, but they're structurally locked out. And then the global sector, the global working class that is incorporated through super exploitation and super control. So the bigger story of global police state is controlling the global working class. And here you, you've already touched on uh, some of it. You know, let me just give you one example here, which is actually after the book was published, but it could have fit perfectly into the book. The Economist, it's May 14, 2022 edition, uh, had an article on how the digital technologies that really uh, came online, they had been already applied previously, but they really, um, their, their use really greatly extended through the COVID pandemic, right? And so the article is called Big Brotherly Boss, and it explains how so many hundreds of millions of people went to homework during during COVID, and that allowed the capitalist class to develop new um, digital technologies for monitoring and controlling these workers. So the article reads, both the scope and the scale of corporate surveillance has ballooned in the past few years. Global demands for employee spying software more than doubled between April 2019 and April 2020. Within weeks of the first lockdown in March 2020, search queries for monitoring tools rose more than 18-fold. Surveillance software makers' sales jumped at Time Doctor, which records videos of user screens or periodically snaps photos to ensure that they are at their computer. They suddenly trebled in April 2020, while those at desk time more than quadrupled. Employers can follow every keystroke or mouse movement, gain access to webcams and microphones, scan emails for gossip or take screenshots, leaving the surveilled worker none the wiser. Last year, Fujitsu, a Japanese technology group, unveiled AI software which promises to gauge employees' concentration based on their facial expression. Then the article goes on to say that 60% of corporate employers are now using this surveillance technology on their workers, and another 17% are in the process of adopting it. I actually did an article myself and a video, which which people should watch. It's called, Is Your Boss Spying on You? Yes. Which is exactly about this phenomenon, about homeworking and surveillance technology, and also resistance to it, and surveillance, the kind of uh, yes. surveillance from below, and how one, one might yes. go about resisting this kind of surveillance. Right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yes. Go on. Oh, no, not, not at all. Not at all. So, but the second part of your question is the structural changes in the nature of the labor process and the capital labor relation made possible by this digitalization undermines the ability of the working class to organize and to fight back in the traditional ways, the 20th century and prior. And so let's go into a little detail on that because um, we had a situation in the initial industrial revolution right up until the eve of globalization in the 1970s and on, in which points of, of production, uh, you know, factories, but also offices and so forth, uh, meant that 
thousands, thousands of workers aggregate, they meet together. And by meeting together, they develop a class consciousness. They understand they have collective interests. They organize into unions. They rebel. That's been the historical story of the, of the workers' struggle against capitalism. Now, that changes when you introduce the digital technology in two ways. First of all, the digital technology replaces real human labor. And that's why we have an expand part of the story of why there's expanding surplus humanity, because these they're locked out because digital technology has taken their place. But the other thing that digital technology allows for is a disaggregation of these workplaces, not just that people go home to work, that too. And that's permanent, by the way. It's already, we have the data showing that a significant portion of those that now work out of home part or full time is going to be, that's going to be the, the wave of uh, the future, right? right? And that's very dramatic. But also, um, the workplaces themselves with the revolution and outsourcing and subcontracting and so forth means that workers are more and more disaggregated physically. Their employment doesn't lead them into to masses of other workers where class consciousness um, uh, uh, develops. And so that means, there, that means that there's a weakness in terms of uh, you know, collective coming together, the working class, this disaggregation, this atomization. Um, and so that's also part of the story of how digital technologies allow, um, absent other things, ap okay, there's absent anything else, the digital technologies uh, weaken the ability of the working class to come together to class and resist and strengthen the ability of the capitalist class to impose these new forms of social control. I want to mention one other thing because we didn't get into it, be it, be quick about it, but we didn't get into it earlier in the interview. So historically, there are different ways that the working class can force capital to, um, to, to redistribute wealth downward and to accumulate its the working class power from below. That's through mass struggles at the level of the nation state. And secondly, by putting pressure on states, and states also have their own interests in doing this, to regulate the market, to regulate the extremes of capitalist exploitation, not in the interests of workers, the states wouldn't be doing that, they're capitalist states, but in the interests of securing the stability and reproduction of the system of capitalism itself. But what happens? When capital goes global in the late 1970s and on, it launches capitalist globalization as a way of breaking free from the nation state and thereby weakening working classes and popular classes at the level of the nation state and thereby also getting out of the, the ability of the state to impose regulation, to con impose controls on capital. That's why you have, that's the big part of the story of why you have escalating inequality. There's no political authority worldwide that it can compose, impose regulation and control on transnationally mobile uh, capital. So that's why, and we didn't get into resistance yet, but that's also why these um, um, working class and popular class struggles need to transnationalize. And we've been speaking about that for 30 years now. How, if, if capital has transnationalized, how do we create transnational forms of resistance, right? Um, but I did want to mention that the part of the story of global police state is that the the working and popular classes worldwide had built up their power from the 1930s until the mass rebellions of the 1960s and 70s. Capital goes on the counteroffensive with the neoliberal counter-revolution and globalization from the 1980s and on, and that changes the correlation of class and social forces worldwide in favor of transnational capital. Now, now a global rebellion is underway, and so now everything is up for grabs, and now capital is moving to the defensive. I'll conclude with just this. You mentioned the World Economic Forum last time, and I mentioned I wrote a, an article recently about it. And I've been following the World Economic Forum for some 30 years now. We've been writing about it. And this last meeting, it was so palpable that the transnational ruling class that meets there is 
uh, rudderless. They don't know how to resolve the crisis. They don't know how to go forward. They're scared. They're scared of the global revolt. They're scared of, of financial and, and economic instability. They are really clueless on how to resolve the crisis. And so we, we get into a situation where the ruling classes, you know, they can't rule in the old ways. They don't know what to do. And the popular and working classes worldwide are really on the move. So we're getting to this, you know, very turbulent and moment of uncertainty and, and, and struggle in, in, you know, worldwide. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's interesting. Obviously, a huge amount has changed since you wrote your book. And in a way, it feels like when you wrote it in mid-2019, you weren't saying that the popular rebellion was fully underway in the way that it has, has, has begun to since. It sounds like basically what you were saying in the book is like the kind of global police state is a preemptive move against a possible rebellion. Um, do you see what is happening now um, as as kind of uh, manifesting that uh, that rebellion and 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 actually potentially precipitating the kind of alternatives that you you sort of describe or or not. I mean, like you know, one example, one small example is the very end of your book. You call for a new international. Now, obviously, there is an organization called Progressive International which has formed since the uh, the publication of your book. But I'm wondering. Do these kind of new organizations, do these new movements, do these new struggles um, that we've seen, whether that's uprisings in 2020 over um, kind of racism globally in the UK, Kill the Bill in Nigeria and SARS in America, Black Lives Matter, and obviously the many progressive political leaders that have been elected democratically um, in Latin America um, and elsewhere since the publication of your book. Does this represent hope? Is this what you want? wanted or is this um a partial victory or even one step forward or two steps back i mean this is fantastic discussion so absolutely global class struggle is intensifying as we speak um i was just looking at the headlines around the world before this interview started and as you know as we speak there's a uh was a general strike in south africa um the, the uh, peasants in India are on the move again after the mass strikes. And remember, there was first a strike of 150 million people in India, the biggest labor mobilization in the history of the world. And then that was followed just a year later by 250 million people. You know, in India, in a general strike in India in 2020, 21. Um, so absolutely, global class struggle is heating up. There are rebellions everywhere, um, everywhere uh, we look. Um, and that intensified through the pandemic. In fall of 2019, and you mentioned some of these uprisings, was really a peak in uprisings, you know, social explosions everywhere. Then we all had to go into quarantine and the ruling groups used the pandemic to clamp down. But even in then in the midst of the pandemic, as you just pointed out, we had the George Floyd uprising, 25 to 30 million largely young people took to the streets in the midst of the pandemic in the United States when George Floyd was murdered by the, by the, by the police. Uh, that's unprecedented. That's the biggest mobile, mass mobilization in the history of the Americas, 25 to 30 million uh, people. So yes, all over the world, the global revolt has intensified. As we speak, it is intensifying. But there are a couple problems that we have to note. The first, and this of course is debatable, some people say we don't need political organizations, we don't need revolutionary organizations and parties. I don't agree with that. One of the problems is precisely that you have 
we know what we're rebelling against and we have all of these uprisings, but we don't have a viable alternative project that doesn't make the mistake of the 20th century whatsoever, you know, the 20th century uh, left, uh, with viable projects for the 21st century, and we don't have um, political, you know, coherent, in many cases, some cases we do, political organizations and revolutionary uh, parties and organizations that can, you know, serve as, as a rudder that can give some, some larger coherence to these uh, rebellions everywhere. Now, I reject completely the 20th century model of vanguardism, where there's some single revolutionary party that has all the answers, sees the state power, and, and rules from top down. That was a complete failure. So we need new models. But we do need revolutionary organizations. So you have this incredible um, gap between masses of people rebelling and wanting to rebel. Right. And we have all of this data on the younger generation, Generation Z and millennials turning to socialism and completely anti-capitalist on the one hand, and the lack of revolutionary political organizations and programs. That's the problem, the challenge we face here. The other thing I want to say is that we also have a rapid political polarization worldwide between an insurgent left and popular and working class forces rising up and an insurgent far right, whether it's far right populism, authoritarianism, outright dictatorship, and most frighteningly actual fascist projects. So we have this polarization and we have that right now we don't know which is getting um, um, the, the, the upper hand. Um, so yeah, that's where we're at right now. I think it's very positive that the, I'm a member of the Progressive International um, and it's extremely positive. We, and it's a very important development in coordinating um, you know, struggles across borders, but we need a lot more of that. I really wanted to ask you to explain something um, about the contradictions of capitalism and the dilemma um, faced by the nation state between promoting transnational capital accumulation and achieving political legitimacy through commitment to the nation. And I think we see this very starkly, at least our audience in the UK predominantly uh, will see this in the Labour leader Keir Starmer, who famously you know, covered the last Labour uh, conference in Union Jack had everyone sing the national anthem, whilst at the same time, you know, a few months later, telling interviewers when in a quick fire question round, Davos or Westminster, he answers Davos. You know, how do, what, what, tell us a bit about this contradiction in capitalism um, and, and, and how uh, we can, I suppose, on the left, exploit mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Yes. So, so let me just start by saying there are, there are, we can identify four big dimensions to the complete crisis, not just of global capitalism, a crisis of humanity. Of course, we have the, you know, we're reaching to the, we're reaching the ecological limits to the reproduction of capitalism and the, the collapse of the biosphere. Put that aside for a moment. Secondly, there's, as we discussed, a, a crisis worldwide of social reproduction for the vast majority of humanity. Literally billions of people cannot survive. Put that aside for a minute and let's focus on just the two dimensions, the economic dimension of crisis, this deep crisis of, of overaccumulation, the structural economic crisis. And then we have the crisis of political legitimacy and capitalist hegemony. States all around the world are facing these spiraling crises of legitimacy precisely because masses of people can't survive, because there's class and social struggle, because of everything we've already discussed. The state is in deep legitimacy crisis. Capitalist hegemony is breaking down. So how do the ruling groups respond? But especially here, those that are in charge of the, of the, of the state, right? They respond by trying to hold together the social order in the face of, of and, and recover legitimacy through a discourse of nationalism, of xenophobia, of populism. And so on the one hand, you have that, what you just pointed out to. And on the other hand, these state managers, these state officials, these political leaders, you know, of the capitalist system, on the other hand, 
hand, their job is to create the conditions for transnational capital to accumulate in their own countries. They try and attract transnational capital investment and stabilize both the national and the global economy. And that is a contradictory mandate. They can't do both at the same time. So it creates this literally schizophrenia in what they say and what they do. So just as you pointed out, they'll have a nationalist, racist, you know, xenophobic uh, discourse. And on the other hand, they'll, they'll turn around and say, you know, it's the World Economic Forum. And it's, you know, so, so there, no, that contradiction is real, but it's in their discourse and practice, but it's reflecting the real contradictions of global capitalism. Sure. And I think, I mean, you, you talk towards the end of the book about how this creates a particular contradiction for kind of neo-fascists um, and, and the far right, which is that whereas in the 20th century, um, you know, fascism could reward its uh, nation state citizens. So, for example, Germany offering some material benefits to, uh, I suppose, Aryans uh, whilst uh, murdering millions of Jews because it had a national kind of program um, uh, or even, I suppose you could say international, given that it, it was expanding colonially at that time. Um, so it could offer material benefits within the bounds of the, the Third Reich, let's say, um, whereas neo-fascists have this problem where, you know, Georgia Maloney, say, um, will be having to talk the talk of uh, the nation state whilst not actually being able to offer any of the benefits of fascism, which is, uh, you know, material benefits for the few and death potentially for everyone else. Um, and, and and so, yeah, like how, how, how they reconcile this is by having a kind of fascism that's purely rhetorical and, and completely um, not, not not material in the same in the same way, um, which I thought was a, a really interesting a really interesting point, and therefore incredibly flimsy. Because if you're making a um, an argument which has no material benefits attached to it, all you need is a better rhetorician. Absolutely, this is extremely important. What you're pointing out politically, where we're at now how we go forward on, on the left. So absolutely what you just pointed out, fascism has always been a project that requires a mass base within the working class itself, right? And and trying to bring some benefit to the working class, fascism always, always historically and in the 21st century has also been a response to capitalist crisis, a particular response in which you mobilize a mass base around racism, around xenophobia, around militarism, about what I call a martial masculinity uh, and, 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 and so forth. And so that's the discourse of fascism, but exactly as you pointed out, oh, but, but, but let me just say, so part of the challenge of fascists now is they're organizing uh, those sectors of the working class that have been totally destabilized by capitalist globalization. And they're organizing through the, these discourses and with a promise to relieve social anxiety and to resolve actual material problems of those sectors of the working class that they want to organize, which very often in the in the in Europe and the United States is racialized sectors, right? Traditionally white sectors of the working class had this certain stability and now they're experiencing socioeconomic destabilization, downward mobility, and they're susceptible to the fascist uh, message. But they're also susceptible to the leftist message. That's why you had a situation here in the United States where those that voted for Trump previously voted for both Obama and then supported, um, uh, what's his name? Gosh, uh, Bernie Sanders. And then they turned to Trump. And here's the problem. The left, at least in the United States, and maybe less so, but also in Europe, the left does not understand this, that the response to the threat of fascism is to put out a leftist message to the would-be social base of fascism. These 
previously privileged sectors of the working class that are totally socioeconomic destabilized and are totally sinking into misery. Rather than attacking that social working class basis, you know, with your privilege, your racist, etc., we have a serious problem here in the United States where that would-be base of fascism is listening to the fascist message, the Trumpist message, the, 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 the right-wing militia message, etc., etc., and they're getting that and saying, oh, someone's speaking for us, recognizing our misery, our difficulties. Of course, it's a false message. You've already said that. But there's not the left saying to them, otherwise, you know, we understand your plight. Here's your, the real source of your problem. Come join us in these struggles, right? So that's a weakness of the left is feeding fascism, at least very much in the United States. I mentioned that briefly in the book, Global Police State, but again, there's a follow-up book which builds on it, which is Global Civil War, really looks much more into detail on this. And um, yeah, I think we're in trouble if we don't you know, recognize this weakness, the left's weakness on, in this area. Mm -hmm. Not to delve too much into the left's weaknesses, but I, I think obviously for listeners of this podcast, it, it is useful to, to, to reflect on. Um, there's something... Um, which you, you you talk about in the book, which is um, that, you know, demands such as those made by the Black Lives Matter uprising and movement um, that came out of that uprising uh, for defunding the police, you know, within the context of your analysis, the, the global police state could be quite, you know, demands for defunding the police could be quite dangerous because if isolated from a broader critique of capitalism, what might happen if we were to summarily defund police departments is that that power vacuum is then filled by the private, kind of the privatized police non-state, such as, you know, uh, social media platforms or, uh, or private security companies or, or whoever. Um, and is, is there a danger in your view of, of thinking about, um, let's say, abolitionist movements as, um, you know, outside of a critique of, of, of capitalism? And have you seen that, that, that kind of, do you, do you perceive that as like a real risk? Absolutely. 100%. We're living that risk right now. I mean, we squandered an uprising of 25 to 30 million people. You know, I went into the streets twice. I'm a little older, so it was risky with COVID because this was April, this was May, June, you know, in the midst of the, the worst part of the, the pandemic. And I watched the tear gassing. I, you know, I had some people being beaded. I did it from a distance. The second time, there wasn't any police violence, but there was a mass march. You know, I spoke with so many young young people. And this is a really serious uh, problem. There was such a low level of theoretical and political development among these young people. They, excuse me, I won't use the full language, but their biggest chant was F the police, not defund the police even, F the police. That was the big chant, right? And, the, and, and um, there was a total absence of any left message, of any deeper political analysis. That's the tragedy I was saying previously. You have a global revolt and you don't have an organized left or left message. And in some cases you do, and in many cases um, you, you, you don't. And you would never know that in those two months that we had the George Floyd uprising, we also had a thousand strikes by workers. One thousand, you heard me right, in two months in the midst of the pandemic. And there was no linkage between this uprising to, to protest police violence and workers that were on the move, right? And that's, that is a giant problem. Um, and 
Uh, and part, again, part of the problem is the left isn't there, but I want to put forward this critique. I know it's controversial, but also the little left that is there or a fake left is giving this, um, this, you know, this identitarian message. Um, and, and, and that identitarian message is, was undermining any critique of capitalism, any class analysis of the uprising. And to conclude, to conclude, I, I, you know, the young people I spoke with and I wrote articles about this is that the police are just the coercive arm of the capitalist state. They are there, they are there to defend private property from the property list, to defend the affluent from the masses who are locked out and marginalized and impoverished. And that type of an understanding, which isn't even a radical left understanding, that's utterly absent. So the demand to defund the police, just as you said, I'm just basically endorsing exactly what you said, absent that larger analysis and the politics that come out of it, meant that we're not moving forward even when we have big rebellions. They just fizzle out in that city and they didn't go anywhere or change anything. It is possibly the hard truth because, I mean, history has kind of has kind of proven you right, I suppose. And I think, you know, you, you say in the book that... Uh, Attempts to resist the global police state often make moral appeals to social justice, which I think goes hand in hand with the identitarian politics that you're talking about. Um, you know, identity groups can only be morally wronged usually because right. they're not they're they're, they're they're materially so diverse. Um, which you say moral appeals to social justice, which by itself begets at, at best uh, mild reform. So, for example, I'm just trying to make this concrete for for listeners. Um, defund the police, uh, not because the police are the defenders of global capital, but because they are racist, because they are misogynistic, and so on. And it's interesting, and I think people don't think about this enough, that, you know, why why do people not reflect more on the fact that these are exactly the same critiques that the establishment make of the police that the establishment can get behind you know have the, we have the mcpherson report that happened after the murder of stephen lawrence in the uk um, and now the angiolini inquiry into the abduction rape and murder of sarah everard back in 2020 which is expected to conclude soon and to conclude you know in exactly the same words that you might hear the black lives matter movement or the kill the bill movement in the uk um sort of using police are institutionally misogynistic you know why do we not think the establishment is saying, is parroting us, is this not a bit of a sign that our critiques are fundamentally not radical? Well, I would reverse what you just said. The, the ruling groups are not parroting us. Um, they are the ones that have established these limits to these uprisings and the discourse around it. So we have a situation here in the United States where the Pentagon, the highest level generals in the Pentagon, uh, and Blinken in the State Department, his whole State Department has said, we are so proud of ourselves for pushing forward this agenda of diversity, equity, inclusion. That's what it's called now rhetorically here in the United States, DEI. And we are championing this. Uh, with the black, with the um, BLM led, it wasn't really BLM led, it was just this uprising identified with, with black lives. And the aftermath of that uprising, even in the final weeks of it, uh, corporate corporations and government agencies pledged $10 billion. You heard me right, $10 billion um, to so-called racial justice. I say so-called in quotes because it really has nothing to do with real real justice. Um, and that $10 billion went to propping up um, this DEI program, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, which is at the absolute best, it simply seeks 
the equitable representation for historically marginalized or underrepresented groups in the structure of power itself, in the state, in the corporations, in the you know, social and economic institutions of society. And that strengthening equitable representation of different groups within the structure of power actually ends up strengthening the hegemony of the system itself because there's no critique whatsoever. So you get 20% of, of black people or 30% now of the data will be integrated in you know comfortable life centers and equally represented in, in the institutions of power. And 70% are in ever more immiserated and mar mar marginalized and locked up in you know, systems of mass, um, in, in mass incarceration. Um, so that 10 billion, a lot of it was earmarked for black businesses. And this has been a long story in the United States that there's one sector which is simply arguing for black capitalism or inclusion of black people to just use the black-white dichotomy um, in the structures of power and the privilege and the middle and upper layers. And then um, another group which says, no, the problem of black liberation is the problem of the struggle against capitalism by all of the working class. And what's winning now, absolutely in the United States, by you know, with hands down, is that first position and the DEI agenda. And again, it's we that are parroting the ruling groups. The ruling group, by and large, changed their strategy after the mass rebellions of the 1960s and 1970s and turned to ending formal discrimination. Of course, there's still discrimination taking place. Uh, and then sought to try and create black and uh, Chicano uh, middle class Black and Chicano capitalists, Black and Ch Chicano professional and managerial elements. Uh, and that's been the, the strategy of the ruling groups from the 1980s and on. And it's accelerated in the last few years, you know, with the starting with Ferguson uh, here in the United States, which is 2014, I think, and accelerating with, with George Floyd. And we on the left, or the so-called left, have not seemed to understand that it's we that are now parroting the ruling group strategy for the last 40, 45 years. Right, right. I think in contrast, I suppose, to this, um, we have, well, at least it seems to think, it seems to me that you think there's a contrast with uh, between this, you know, liberal anti-racism and the contemporary um, environmental movement, which um, certainly in the UK seems to have had a, you know, a great deal more success um, in recent years, obviously mixed success, I would say, given that you know, Extinction Rebellion, one of the best known environmental groups famously declared itself to be like not political and not taking on capitalism. Right. But actually, in practice, a lot of environmental groups are deeply anti-capitalist and have um, incorporated, you know, much more of the, the that critique into their movements and therefore target, you know, they don't just make demands of states, they target companies um, and understand that it's actually companies in, in many ways that, as you argue in your book, are calling the shots um, as opposed to state level kind of um, actors. Um, and I'm wondering whether you see, um, I, I suppose, more hope in contemporary environmental movements or whether just to kind of, I suppose this is really where I want to, to end because I want to leave us on a note of, <laughs> you know, maybe some optimism. Um, is the eco-socialism that you call for at the end of the book a reflection of your belief that um, the environmentalist movement has is onto something in its critique, or is, is is there something else at play? I am optimistic, and and I'll tell you why. You know, as we end the interview here, I'll, I'll refer to why. But I think yes, that I think that the environmental movement 
Uh, of course, there's multiple you know, political strands and positions within the larger environmental movement, but I think that it is definitely on a clear, on a conscious collision course with capitalism, because at this point, it's so obvious and evident that the implacable expansion of capital, not just carbon, you know, fossil capital, um, is, is, thro- you know, is, is, is um, threatening to collapse the whole biosphere. Uh, so yes, the environmental movement is radicalizing because you can't even talk about the environmental crisis without becoming more more uh, radical. And so, yes, that's very, very positive. Uh, but I want to go back to something we discussed way earlier in the interview, and it is that the younger generation, okay, the, the Generation Z, which I believe is those that are born in the year 2000 and on, and the millennial generation born that came of age at the year 2000, the data shows that this generation is at this point majority anti-capitalist majority i mean the data that i have in the second book the follow-up to global police day which is titled global civil war is that some 52 to 53 percent of those two generations identify as anti-capitalist they're wide open to socialism you know i just teach, taught a course this past quarter in you know at, at here at the university of california that looked at revolutions in the 20th century but as part of that i had to dig up data and i shared it with my students um, and so this young generation is even open to the term communism. They don't even like say your communist doesn't even scare them. So that's extremely positive. That's why I don't put the blame on these young people. That's why I'm extremely hopeful, right? I'm optimistic. I put the blame um, on, you know, on the lack of a left and on petty bourgeois elements together with the ruling groups pushing forward a counter radical agenda of, again, what they're calling diversity, equity, inclusion, the identitarian politics, um, repre- representation. Um, I mean, I could go on and on on that, but, I, but uh, you know, that's that, as long as we buy into that, we're not tapping into more than half of young people wanting to overthrow capitalism. Totally. And I think, I mean, I think the success of that, um, you know, to conclude, I think that um, there's, whether or not that um, openness to, to anti-capitalism, even to communism, um, particularly in a country which within living memory, you know, had literal witch trials and McCarthyism um, for, 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 for communists, um, you know, I think that the the potential of that lies within um, whether young people can understand anti-capitalism, not as just one of their many political identities, um, but as the overarching framework within which their kind of political political identities fit, right? There's not just one, one other badge on their uh, lapel, but actually the, the fundamental kind of... Um, you know, the, the soil in which they kind of grow their politics. Absolutely. Very well said. So I, I did did what you just said. And my impression, at least from my students and the young people that have gone to these protests that I also participated in, uh, is that they're open when they're told, well, look, anti-capitalism isn't just, capitalism isn't just another form of oppression along with the other ones. It's the whole system in which right, this all takes place, they're open to that when they hear that message. So the challenge is a left which will put out that message in a way that it's heard by millions of people over the two other messages they're getting, which is, once again, the fascist message, and secondly, the uh, liberal reformism, um, DEI, uh, liberal anti-racism message. 
totally, totally. As in the words of Lisa Simpson, the whole damn system is wrong. Um, William I. Robinson, uh, I hope that's not too uh, too lowbrow a note on which to conclude our interview. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a privilege. independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.